0: Have you ever, um, have you ever looked through binoculars before? Anybody ever done that? Yeah, a few of you. This uh, binoculars don't. Oh, there. Oh, it was Lance and Tanya, right there. <laughs> Woo! Big as life. Yeah, beefcake back there. Big as life. Man, uh, binoculars are really good at letting you see things up close that are that are far away, right? And and so if you're um, in the woods, out in Oregon, as I have been uh, as a young guy, uh, looking at a buck on the other ridge, binoculars come in really handy. The, the problem with binoculars is that while you can see the deer on the other ridge really clearly, what you miss is the bear 15 feet away, right? Because you can see what's far away really good, but you can't see the things that are really um, close to you. As we go through the book of Revelation, I want you to think about it this way. Pretend that you are in the position of Jesus or John and you are standing at the threshold of heaven and humanity and they've been brought into perfect unity and the events of revelation are over and evil is defeated and sin has been separated from God's good creation. And, And you are looking back throughout history to the first century church, the first Christians in the first church And you're looking back in history with a pair of binoculars. You're looking from the end, you're looking all the way back to the beginning of of the church. Now, the church is brand new, right? These first followers of Jesus, they're just learning what it means to follow Jesus and to live out their their faith. And, and, And for the first time in history, they're having to actually live the things that they claim they believe. It's not just about, yes, I worship this God, but it's about living that out in everyday life. And on top of this, because of their faith in Jesus, they are facing deadly persecution because they believe that Jesus is the king and not Caesar, not the Roman king or emperor, not any other king, but Jesus is the king. And because of that early persecution, some in those churches have begun to waver in their, in their faith. Some churches were dealing with things like apathy. Others were dealing with um, affluence. They had wealthy people in the church, and those people wanted to keep their wealth. They were dealing with um, uh, moral compromises. And in some of those churches, even There is sexual immorality, and it's not just present in the church, it's almost celebrated, it's expected, it's talked about openly. But some in each of these churches are doing their best to remain wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, the King. And and so Jesus at the end, you, at the end, looking back at the first century, at these young Christians, you want to write a letter to encourage them in their their faith. And so uh, Jesus does this through John's visions to help these early Christians see the end from the beginning. Then the problem is That John is looking through this time span from the end back to the beginning of the church. He's looking at this as though through binoculars. And so John doesn't see everything. He only sees some things. And so this revelation of John is supposed to be a revelation of encouragement. And it's not supposed to reveal everything. It is supposed to reveal enough. So when we look at Revelation, we don't have this idea that we're going to be told everything about what's going to happen. Remember I said last week that Revelation is not a book about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It's a book about why Jesus is coming back. And, And we're not supposed to have everything revealed to us in Revelation, but just enough to hold on to that hope. And so today, we're going to look at Revelation chapters 1 through 3, and it's kind of John's prologue to the rest of the book in chapter 1, and then we're going to get a snapshot to see what's happening in the first century church in chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to look at what's going on in the first century church as a whole by hearing about what's happening in seven specific churches. And so John starts out like this, the revelation of Jesus Christ in your Bible, it probably says that in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember I told you whenever you see the word Christ, you can just substitute king because that's what the word means. And so John starts out his book saying, this is the revelation and it's about Jesus who's the king. And, and we all know what revelation means, right? If you hear about revelation, we know that it means to reveal something, to uncover something, to make something known, We've got revelation down. We understand that word. But what if I said the word apocalypse? What would you think of then? I'm pretty sure that you would think of its uh, synonyms um, annihilation, devastation, catastrophe, or that big churchy one, Armageddon. Ooh. That's what we think of when we hear the word apocalypse, right? Well, um, this is an interesting thing about <laughs> the book of Revelation. Because in the original language that John wrote the book in, he did not use the word revelation. He did not say it's the revelation of Jesus the king. What he said was, it's the apocalypse of Jesus the king. Now, if that's what we read today, what would we think? Annihilation, destruction, Armageddon, it's all over. But that's not what his early readers thought. The apocalypse of Jesus the king, we think, is a negative thing, but when the early Christians look at that, they saw that as the word revelation. It's not annihilation and devastation of the world as, as God, like, returns. This is how we think of it. God returns to dump out his wrath on the poor, unsuspecting humans that are, that are here. That's how most people think about revelation. That's not how the early church Thought about it because um, apocalypse was actually a type of Jewish literature. And it recounted the prophets' symbolic dreams and visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history, okay? So we read about apocalypse, and and there's apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. Think of um, guys like uh, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. They wrote apocalyptic literature. And, And so they recounted these prophetic visions, symbolic dreams, that reveal heavenly perspectives on current events and human history. And so, Revelation, apocalypse, it's like looking back through history from heaven on a specific point in time with a pair of binoculars. You see that thing fairly clearly, but everything else is fuzzy. All the other stuff that's going around, I'm not really sure what exactly happens, but I, I kind of see the point here. And so, this is the struggle with apocalyptic writing apocalyptic literature, it's just not really clear. John goes on to say that this particular apocalypse he's writing about is also a a prophecy in the next one. Uh, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. And so when he uses the word prophecy here, we understand, the Jewish readers would have understood, that prophecy is a word from God through a prophet to a people. And so God just spoke to a prophet. Again, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, he spoke to a prophet through dreams and visions typically. And then that prophet would go and speak to the people that God wanted him to speak to. If you ever read the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, Jonah is told by God to go and give a message to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah says I don't want I don't want to do it, right? And so God speaks to a prophet And that prophet then speaks to a people. And so these prophetic words from God, they were used to warn or comfort in times of crisis. They were to to warn in times of sin. Often in the Old Testament, we read a prophet who goes to Israel, who goes to Judah and says, look, if you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to be disciplined. And it's not going to be pleasant for you. Another nation is going to come in. And so there's all kinds of chaos that surrounds this. Now, John so, uh, uses uh, this word, a couple of interesting things happen when he uses the word prophecy in verse three. The first thing that happens is that his Jewish readers would immediately tie his words back to the Old Testament prophecies and prophets. When they read the word prophecy, they're gonna, they're gonna think about those Old Testament writers of apocalyptic literature, those guys that said things, that brought um, warning to the Israelite people, or uh, they brought comfort in times of crisis, they would immediately go back and think about those guys. But John is writing his apocalypse on the other side of the promised Messiah. So here's this interesting thing. In the Old Testament, as the prophets come and they speak to the people from God, they're often speaking about the coming of the Messiah. And we look at time in a, in a linear kind of thing, so we're all the way over here in the beginning. The Old Testament prophets, they're talking about this future point in time where Jesus, the Messiah, would come, and he'd set everything right. Much of apocalyptic literature is talking about that. But that time has come and gone, right? Jesus has come. He, he died for the sins of the world. He came back to life. And now John, about 60 years later, is writing about this event, and it's already happened. And so it's this really interesting thing that happens, because John is actually bringing all of these Old Testament prophecies and this apocalyptic writing to a climax. This, it's already happened, and so here we're going to go on from here and see what happens now that Jesus the Messiah has come, and everything that God wanted to happen has happened. And so we're like, okay, we got to hold on, right? Because this is a prophetic writing, but it's not like the prophetic writing in the Old Testament. It's different because the cross and Jesus have already happened. And so John addresses his letter, first of all, in chapters 2 and 3, to seven churches in Asia. And, and I'll just tell you, there were more churches than just the seven in, in Asia. I don't know how many more, but there had to be more. Asia was a big place. There were probably lots more than seven churches But to the Jewish people, the number seven is really important. The number seven represented completeness or or fullness. And it was based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle of creation. We talked about that last week. God creates all of these things on the six days of creation. On the seventh day, he rests because he had completed his work. And then God blesses the seventh day and he makes it holy. And then that Sabbath seven-day cycle, it begins to work its way into all of these other things that happen. It comes into the Jewish feast that they that they have. Every seven years, the farmers were to leave the land fallow and not uh, cultivate it. Um, every 50th year or seven sevens. the people were to return all their property and cancel all their debts. And so this seven cycle, it comes over and over again in Old Testament history. And John captures that idea of rest and completeness and fullness, and he brings it into the New Testament. So seven is going to show up a whole lot in John's symbolic writing in the book of Revelation. And, and just like I encourage you to, to swap the word Christ for the word king when you read that in your Bible, um, I'm now going to encourage you when you see the number seven, in many cases in the Bible, instead of thinking about it numerically, that, that it's these numbers, and you maybe if you put them all together, you'll get some secret code that's going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Instead of seeing the numbers like that, Think in the number seven when you read that, think about completeness or fullness. And so when John references seven churches, or next week when we move on, the next couple chapters, we're going to find seven seals, and there's seven trumpets, and there's seven bulls, and basically what John is saying is he's saying, look, the time is complete. It's reached its fullness. It's not about the number. It's about what the number represents. So a couple of things in the opening chapter of Revelation that we need to um, that we need to look at uh, a couple of things of importance. In verse nine, John mentions that he is on the uh, island of Patmos. This island called Patmos. So John is writing, Jesus is giving him this vision as he's standing on the threshold of heaven, and he's giving John this vision that he's writing to the church about um, as though he's got binoculars on. And John is writing this from an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos, and that's important because this island was where the Romans would send um, political prisoners uh, and convicts. They would go to this island, and um, we don't have a whole lot of information about it. We know that it was most likely guarded by uh, Roman soldiers so that nobody could get off the island. We also know that a lot of people who were sent to that island died from things like exposure and from violent attacks from other people who were on the island. It was kind of a, like whatever happens, happens. Like whatever happens on Patmos stays on Patmos, literally because nobody gets off. So um, John is facing persecution at a time when he's writing to the church about persecution. So he's experiencing himself what he's writing to these other people about. And John says that while he was praying one day, he was in the Spirit, is how he says it, that he heard a loud voice behind him. And he said the the voice was like a trumpet. You ever heard that kind of voice? Uh, Andrea and I and Trent went to uh, Brahms the other day. Remember, this just came to me. Went to Brahms in uh, 13th and Greenwich, I think. We stopped there one night to go in and get some ice cream. They were really busy and there was a dude behind the counter and I don't know if he was in charge, but he sounded like he was in charge. You know those kind of like his voice you could the entire restaurant you could hear him talking everything that he said just boomed and loud, and, and, and honestly, it was a little obnoxious. I remember turning to Andrea and going, um, I could not work here with this guy. Like, I'd last a day, and then I'd be gone. Like, I'm not coming back. This is um, crazy. So John hears this voice. It's like a trumpet behind him. And the voice says, I want you to write down what you see. I want you to write it down in a book, and then I want you to send it to these seven churches. And when John turned around, he didn't see a large man with a moving voice like you would expect. Here's what John saw when he turned around. Then I turned to see the voice, this trumpet voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw not a big guy with a loud voice. Instead, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So he's saying, "I, I saw a human person standing there. That person was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. Now as we read the rest of this, I want you to get a mental picture of this in in your head, right? There's some guy, doesn't have to be me, but if you would choose me, that's cool. Uh, There's this guy, and he's standing there, and he's got this long robe, and he's got this golden sash. Could you picture me in that? Uh, He's got his gold sash, but he has a head full of hair, and it's it's white. It's it's like white wool or white snow. And that would make you think like an older person, right? That's what you would think probably. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Well, I thought his voice was like a trumpet. But but here, his voice is like uh, the roar of many waters, although we we don't know he said anything yet. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which would make it hard to talk. And his face was like the sun, shining at full strength. You ever looked at the sun before? That would be difficult. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, the hand full of stars, uh, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. "...as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Do you see how the apocalyptic literature of the day plays out in this? Symbolic dreams and visions? It, like, it's a little crazy, but because I'm telling you right now, Jesus did not have uh, flames of fire for eyeballs— Uh, And his feet were not bronze. This wasn't real. Each of these things, the way that John is describing these uh, aspects or characteristics of Jesus, they would all have a specific meaning to the people of the day. And so they might see the bronze feet as as a a sign or a symbol of a sure foundation, a steady foundation, like it can't be moved. And they'd see maybe the flames of of fire as eyes, as though um, piercing and being able to see through anything. And so we get this kind of visual picture, and for the Jewish people, they would have had some pretty clear ideas about what John was saying through these apocalyptic visions. And these characteristics of of Jesus, they're going to come back into play in chapters 2 and 3. But the only thing that Jesus explains, he doesn't explain his white hair or the gold sash or the bronze feet. He just explains the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches in Asia, And the seven stars that he holds in his hand, which represents the angels that are charged with spiritually protecting those seven churches. And what follows in chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus' notes to John to each of these seven churches. And each of the notes that um, Jesus and John write, they all follow a similar kind of flow. If you read through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, I encourage you to do that as we go through this series. Jesus is giving these notes to each of these churches, and and there's a similar pattern that he takes. Uh, There's an expression of Jesus as the one writing the note that speaks to the issues that the church that he's writing to are facing. Okay, so they all start out with Jesus saying, here is uh, Jesus and here's what I look like. And he references the things that John says about him in the verse we just looked at. For instance, the very first church Jesus writes to is the church in Ephesus. And, And Jesus explains or starts it out this way. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven lampstands. And so these depictions of Jesus that the first uh, five churches start with come right out of chapter one. And so Jesus is pulling out these specific aspects. uh, Jesus, the one who has the feet of bronze. Jesus, the one who has the flaming eyes. And so he's giving that church a very specific thing to look at. Jesus, this is how we think of him. And then in the note that he writes to that church, we're going to see that what happens is whatever aspect or characteristic that is pulled out in the beginning of that note comes into play. And and so um, where Jesus references his feet, he may be talking to that church about the foundation that they have in him. Or if he references the eyeballs, as you read through that, you can see where he's peering into things and he's uncovering things that maybe they thought were covered up. And so all of these things fit together in each of these notes that Jesus is writing to the churches. Um, and they all come straight, or For the first five of them anyway, come straight from chapter 1. And they act as kind of a foundation for the rest of what Jesus is going to say to that specific church. And so in Ephesus, Jesus mentions their patient endurance, but also their lack of love for each other and Uh, For him, the kind of love they had when they first began to follow. And so we see this connection. Jesus says, look, I'm the one who walks among the churches, and I'm the one who holds or controls the seven angels of the seven churches, and here's what I've noticed. You have patient endurance, but you've lost the love that you had at first. And so we get these pictures of Jesus, and then they fit into the note that he's writing to that specific church. That The church in Ephesus, they were doing the right things, but their hearts were beginning to get hard. They they were starting to to look um, more negatively at people as they came in. They were starting to be more suspicious. They were kind of living with more closed hands instead of open hands. And so in the note, after Jesus kind of calls out the church for this sin or whatever is going on in that particular, um, in that particular church, something he does in, in five of the seven churches, Jesus calls the church to repent. So he has, says, here's who I am, here's what's going on in your church, because I can see it, I'm among you, I know what's happening, and so you need to repent of this thing, and you need to change the way that you're, you're living. And so then Jesus encourages them to keep being faithful. Now, there is a change. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't call them to repent. And he opens the book a little bit differently or the note a little bit differently than he does with the other five churches. But we see that those churches are actually living out their faith pretty well. And in one case, Jesus says, look, I'm not going to add anything else to you. I'm not going to ask you to repent of something because you're doing the best that you can right now. Here's the idea that Jesus and John are trying to convey to the church. And it's that Jesus is not absent. He's not an absent God. He's an active God. So we read through Revelation, the first few chapters of Revelation, this is what we're supposed to understand. Jesus didn't come and do his thing and then he went to heaven and then he just stopped. He's active. And we go back to Jesus telling the apostles. Mary says, if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit, the other advocate who will come. And he he won't just be with you, but he'll be in you and he'll work through you. But Jesus didn't just abdicate it. He just didn't take off. Kevin mentioned that earlier. He just didn't take a vacation like, hey, my work is done. I'm going to go to the Bahamas. He's active. He's there. He walks among the churches, and he gives the angels of each church direction on how to lead and guide and protect the church that they care for. That's kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? That we at at Real Life have an angel that reports to Jesus that oversees the things that are going on. He's aware of what's happening in your life and my life, and he orchestrates events, and he works on our behalf in the world. The five of the seven churches, Jesus starts out his note like this, I know your works. I know your works. And sometimes those works are good works. In a few of the five cases, um, they are evil works. And and in one case, Jesus actually says, "Um, I know your works that you pretend to be this way, but you are not. You're totally faking it. You're totally phoning it in. To the other two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus starts out this way to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but he says, you're doing well. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, um, I know where you dwell, where Satan lives or where Satan's throne is. And the point is, Jesus knows what's happening in his churches. He's not an absent God letting us go about our daily lives and business without his interference. It's not the kind of God that he is. He's an active God who consistently monitors the challenges and the successes of his followers so that he might provide the right guidance, the right treatment, the right help at the right time. Though Jesus starts his notes differently to each of the seven churches as he addresses those different issues within each church, all seven of the notes in the same way. To all seven churches, Jesus uses the same phrase, to the one who overcomes or to the one who conquers. And then Jesus goes through this kind of progression as you read through those seven churches and, and what he has to say. And it's really, I think, um, pretty cool. So in the, the first church, he says, to the one who conquers, Jesus says, you are going to get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Um, but basically he says, you're going you're to live and you're going to live for eternity. You're, you're going to get eternal life, which that's pretty cool, right? Well, okay, sign me up. I'm ready uh, for that. And then there's this progression and kind of every church, it ends with a little bit more. He builds a little bit more into that. And when he gets to the seventh church, it's different. He says, to the one who conquers, they will sit with me on my throne. So we start out as if there's levels, and I don't know, but we start out with, hey, um, if you conquer, if you remain faithful, you're going to get to, to eat of the tree of life, you're going to get to live for eternity in paradise with God. That's pretty good. Like you're hanging out in the same neighborhood with God forever. That's awesome. But by the end, he's like, you're not only going to be in paradise with God, you're actually going to sit on the throne with me. And Jesus says, just like I got to sit down on the throne with a father. Now, if you had to pick between the two, which one would you choose? Just hanging out in the neighborhood with God or sitting on the throne of Jesus? I'm like, okay, I'm, like that one sounded pretty good, but sign me up for this, because that sounds awesome, bossing everybody around and getting telling them what to do. That's really cool. And so there's, as you read through those churches, you see this progression happening. Every time he writes to the church, he's like, hey, if you conquer, you're going to get a little bit more and a little bit more. And all of these conquer statements, they come directly from what we'll read in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. The end, if you will, which is not really the end at all, but really the beginning of our real life with King Jesus. The question then is, is it enough to endure when you're faced with death because of your faith? These promises that Jesus is making to those who um, conquer, to those who overcome, is that enough to keep them from losing their faith in the midst of their own death? Well, that's really the question, right? We come to the end of this introduction of, um, of Jesus and we're left with these questions after these introductory chapters. We're left with questions like, um, like this. When faced with persecution, will those first Christians compromise their faith or will they remain faithful? These people are literally facing death by the Roman occupation, you either denounce Jesus or I'm going to run you through with this spear or sword. And so are the promises of Jesus enough for them to stay faithful in the midst of that persecution? The second question we're left with is this, will those who remain faithful actually get what's been promised? There's a lot of stuff that's been promise? Are they actually going to inherit this new world that God has promised? The last question we get is, why does Jesus equate faithfulness with conquerors? The the idea of a conqueror uh, is built into Old Testament um, literature and ideas. Uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem right before he was crucified on, on a donkey, a colt of a, of a donkey that had never been ridden. That, that, that signified some things to the people. A conquering king would ride into town on a white horse, would signify their, their victory and their conquest. And we understand conquering in terms of military might and victory. And then the early church was being persecuted by Rome, this huge empire that ruled the world through military might and political might. They had money and they had power and they thought they could do whatever they wanted. And so we get to this idea in Revelation where these people are being conquered by Rome. They're being conquered, they're being killed, they're being oppressed. And Jesus says, you can be a conqueror. But we're not really told how. How does faithfulness to Jesus equate to me being a conqueror in a world where I have no military might or political power? Why does Jesus equate faithfulness with being a conqueror? I want to leave you with, um, with something to think about this morning that I think it's important for us to know today just as it was important enough for the first followers in the first century as they faced their own persecution and it comes from chapter 1 verse 17 I read it a few minutes ago and it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus here's what he says fear not I am the first and the last Kevin said it like this alpha and omega I am the living one, which is interesting because everybody knew that he had died. He's the living one. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. No matter what happens um, between now um, and the end, when heaven and humanity are brought into unity, what we're supposed to take from Revelation is, is this fear not don't be afraid Jesus was there at the beginning Jesus will be there at the end still living (laughs) you can't get rid of him you can't push him out of your life you can't just ignore him he is always going to be there he died and he came back to life to live forever and he holds the keys which means he can open anything and he can seal anything Jesus is the king. And so even in death, there is nothing for us to fear. That's the foundation of revelation. The early church and the church and this church need to know that. That no matter what happens in our world, no matter what political power or military might comes at us, comes against us, we can be conquerors if In the midst of that, we stay faithful to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to take away. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this book of Revelation. Even though at times it is difficult, and as we move through the book, we're going to see some really interesting things that at first... Seem scary and they seem crazy, and they seem like, How in the world could that happen? And if it does happen, I don't want to be around for it. But God, you wrote this to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. You wrote it to be an encouragement. And so, help it to help it to encourage us today um, to encourage us to be faithful and to stand up for our faith and 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 we don't face persecution like the early church and we don't face persecution like our brothers and sisters in other countries who are even today losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus. Today, I'm sure in countries and in villages and places around the world there have been Christians slaughtered because of their faith. And yet and yet you tell us No matter what happens on this planet hanging in the universe, you are on the throne. And so we have nothing to fear. Help us to hold on to that, God. In Jesus' name.